Welcome to Bloody Mary, a podcast about horror movies and what they mean to us. Uh, I'm your host, and you may have noticed we took a little bit of a break. That's because I'm preparing to record my album Friday, November 3rd. I'll be recording live at Altercation Comedy in Austin, Texas. So come on out if you're there. And my guest tonight will also be there. Uh, super excited to have on the pod today, Mishka Shubali. Hey. I had no idea you were recording at Altercation. That's such a great idea. Yeah, actually, it was totally JT. We were together and I was discussing how I had come into a little bit of extra money. And he was like, you should record an album and press it on vinyl and you should record it on my fest. And I was like, oh, yeah. Hell yeah. (laughs) That is a wonderful way to burn through some money. Hell yeah. Yeah, and I'm I'm so excited to record at Altercation because I've always felt like it's just this group of people that thoroughly get each other, you know, and it just feels like you can be so authentically yourself there. It feels like a family reunion if we didn't hate our families. You know, I was I, I always think of it as like it's what you would think a high school reunion should feel like. Yeah. The- <laughs> No, I uh, I enjoy altercation so much that I'm even willing to endure the horrors of uh, preparing and performing a set of my own um, <laughs> in, in, to, to be able to go and hang out with my friends and see some of my, my favorite new comics who I haven't seen yet. A hundred percent. And I feel like I didn't give you an intro worthy of your um, catalog. Mishka is, you know, singer, songwriter, actual author, like triple threat. I, I'll do anything to stay out of having a real job. That's, that's <laughs> basically my, my take. I love that you're so into work because I'm like the, well, not into work, that you're into union organizing and fair labor practices because my fair labor practices, I try not to do any of it. The- <laughs> yeah. My boyfriend and I do have a joke about like, whenever someone's like, what's your dream job? Or like, we don't dream about work. <laughs> <laughs> that's the whole point. So you, you are living in Arizona. Have you always, you haven't always lived there, right? No, I just, um, I went on tour for five months and Arizona is like where the wagon broke down and now I live there. Um, oh. Of course, I'm in Ohio right now pl- playing my silly little hunting games all day long. And then, so I'll be driving from here down to altercation uh, with my little dog, Sadie, and then, uh, and then driving back to Phoenix. Nice. Nice. Yeah. I'm excited to see you again at Altercation. It'll be super fun. So for us to talk about tonight, you have chosen the 2008 film Lake Mungo. Why Why Lake Mungo? Man, it's such a singular kind of sadistic horror movie. You know, I mean, I was thinking about this conversation like leading up to this, and I think it's a weird movie to like, a weird movie to enjoy. Imagine that like we're getting together with a bunch of our buddies to have a night of hanging out and eating garbage and watching horror movies. And I choose for us to watch Lake Mungo. <laughs> Can you imagine what a fucking bummer that would be? <laughs> it's the, it's such <laughs> Hey, let's, yeah, let's all watch this movie that's really about grief and loss and trauma and a very sort of mundane everyday horror of like losing someone of the um, regret, something you can't get back. You know, my friend Zach Lopez has a line in a song that it says, uh, I don't believe in ghosts, man, but I believe in being haunted. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and this is that movie. It's such a haunting movie. It's sort of like an elegy for this elegy of grief for the lost life of this, you know, this family's daughter. And and, and it's particularly tragic because she's like a, a young woman and we were able to see her only in past tense. And it's the film sort of encourages you to conjecture about who she would have become, what her life would have been, who she would have been. And I feel like you fall in love with her as the movie progresses, you know? Yeah. And, and, you know, not only see her in past tense, but also like we don't really know her as a person at all, except for what other people felt about her or her relationship through other people. It's interesting because in the movie, she she starts dead. And then over the course of the movie, she sort of comes to life. It's like she begins as a cipher and then becomes a real human being by the end of the movie. Um, at least in the, you know, in the uh, the perception of the watcher. And it it may, you know, as Lake Mungo is shot in this sort of fake documentary style, which a lot of people hate, but I love when it's done right. Mm -hmm. Um, It may be all the like true crime documentaries I've watched where, you know, there are like sex workers where their murders have gone unsolved for, you know, 
20, 25, 30 years. And it's just, you know, a picture of a smiling young woman. And that's all we, and they're just reduced to just that, just the cipher, just their name. And I feel like Lake Mungo tries to do the obvious or tries to do the opposite where it's sort of this um, restorative archaeology where we get to learn enough about Alice Palmer that by the end of the movie, it you're like, oh God, it's heartbreaking that she died. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was that friend that was like, hey, let's hang out and watch this uh, for my Green Bay crew here. <laughs> oh, awesome. That's, it's, that's so mean. That's a terrible yeah. thing your friends and i love it the um yeah my uh sari Beliak, i don't know if you know her oh. in phoenix and the i call her love my her. grief buddy because like we're just we're into sad shit you know you know this is like the joy division of horror movies it's it's it's, it's, it's funny incredible. speaking of sorry she's someone that does not like horror at all and uh so i had to ask repeatedly to get her on the podcast and then she was on when we did the live version talking about fire in the sky uh but she she's someone that does not like horror at all how do you feel about horror overall i hate horror movies what? i yeah i <laughs> i saw I was in a hotel with my parents driving from New Mexico to New Hampshire when I was like 12 or 13 years old. We turned the TV on. There were like six seconds of the shot from Nightmare on Elm Street with the, uh, I think her name's Tina, trying to claw her way out of the body bag. And that has <laughs> fucking haunted me since then. And I've always been scared by scary movies. I started to, to watch The Boogeyman the other night, a story that I loved when I was a kid. And I got like 10 minutes into it. And then there was like a creak in the kitchen. And I was like, nope, I, I'll happily fight hordes of men i i saw what i thought was a shark when i was in the ocean so i swam over to try and check it out and i'm scared of ghosts man (laughs) scary movies scare the shit out of me and i yeah i can only watch you can usually only watch them when i have somebody there to like protect me oh yeah (laughs) you know i i've always thought like i am a little bit afraid of things or cautious but then my boyfriend and i heard a noise in my house when he was visiting And I didn't even think about it. I ran down the stairs and like way ahead of him. And he was like, what are you doing? What were you going to do? I'm like, well, I I don't know. Apparently I was going to defend my home. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, if it's like a horror movie, then I'm like, what was that? Oh, no, what was that? But Intruder and I'm apparently all stand your ground. I don't know. I, I can recognize a ghost from any sound, the slightest little creak or the, oh yeah, definitely a ghost. But yeah, I I like watching eerie movies. I love corny sci-fi and supernatural movies. I don't like like outright scary movies. I watched Lake Mungo for the first time, I think during lockdown, when I was coming out of a period of like mental illness and drug abuse. And to just stumble on this movie with no warning it fucking ruined my day for like four days afterwards. Just like, what is this? You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's like when you, you know, when you saw went to, to rotten.com the first time or, or one of those like shock websites and then just scars you. The body count in this movie is one. Mm-hmm. One person dies. It's not that end of the world it's not a serial killer it, there's not it's not fountains of gore there's one jump scare in the whole movie why is it so profoundly affecting i i don't know i mean did you have that response to it like did it sort of shake you like that um it definitely it felt more unnerving and just like sadness honestly yeah i i, I think so much of it is just about grief and loss Hmm. Yeah, that was definitely, I think, you know, the most prominent theme is this idea of how we each individually handle grief, particularly the mom. Like, I think for me, she was the most gut-wrenching character because she just wanted to hold out hope that, you know, her daughter was still alive. I thought the father, I mean, you know, he's the father, the patriarch, and, you know, maybe he was supposed to be cast this way but he just seemed kind of cold and awkward like originally when i was watching i was like oh he did something like you know that's the thing about this movie is that everyone appears suspect you can't trust any of the men in the movie and it's like scene after there's there's not a lot of like jump scares or action but it's but just in a quiet sort of um almost slow motion reveal 
They just, with no fanfare, it's like, oh, here's a secret world that you didn't know existed. Here's another secret world. Another layer is pulled away. Another layer is pulled away. When you're first watching that first interview with the father, I was like, oh, he absolutely did it because he has no affect. He he never, he only ever seems to have a flat look or smile a little bit. Really weird smile too. Like, yeah. Russell, why are you smiling right now? Yeah, yeah. The, um when he's talking about his daughter and you, and this is a man that you would, where you would think that he would be racked with grief, but also a man uh, deeply alienated from his own feelings. You know, I, I probably overthought I had like a whole like PowerPoint presentation in my mind before we rescheduled. And it's probably good that we rescheduled because otherwise I would have kept you on here for oh, three hours talking about all the different things. I'm sorry. The, I love a good PowerPoint. <laughs> the and, and this feels a little reductive for like a, a very, I think very complex, very human movie, but Alice Palmer, the obvious um, analogs are Alice from uh, Alice in Wonderland, another, you know, lost little girl. And then Laura Palmer from Twin oh. Peaks. Oh, you're right. Even last name. Oh. And it's funny. It just came to me 10 minutes ago when I was looking at the, because uh, I was thinking about it driving home last night. And I was like, this movie is very, Twin Peaksy without feeling derivative, the, you know the way the you know the death of Alice Palmer is the is the nucleus of the, the whole movie. It, it spins around that, and yeah, I mean she she, she just she becomes a thing immediately. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I kind of felt similar vibes from like the Blair Witch Project, and just that um, the way it's filmed is is unique, and it kind of leaves you a little uncertain as a viewer. So I felt a similar theme there. The other theme that really jumped out at me, I don't know if you feel this way too, with like perhaps having quit drinking is uh, I kind of related to Alice in a way, because I feel like once you quit drinking and you leave certain communities, you do kind of become a ghost to them in a way. Yeah. Yeah. The, that's one of the things, you know, where I, when I read ghost stories or think about ghost stories, I always, um, now I always think, well, how does the ghost feel? <laughs> I definitely feel like I'm the, you know, the, the ghost of Mishka's past, you know, of like, all, <laughs> yes. you know, the shit that I used to do. Yeah. I don't know if you can hear it. If you hear little chirps in the background, it's because my dog is sleeping on my leg and she dreams very hard. So she, oh, made... no, I don't hear it, but that sounds very cute. I'm sure no listener would object to that. <laughs> I feel too, like this movie is really open to a lot of like feminist readings because we're we're presented with sort of like a living, moving Alice through the the video clips that we see of her in the past. And then we're also confronted with her corpse again and again. And it's like um, the person versus the thing that she's become, she's become an object and it's horrifying. And then uh, this thing that I just keep turning over and over again in my mind. Um, and this is, I guess, in probably the the third act of the movie the video they discover on i think on her friend's cell phone of alice burying her belongings mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and then this horrible image of her sort of walking and then she's confronted by an apparition that looks stunningly like her own dead body and it feels it felt to me you know the the way that she buries, I think she buries her cell phone, and I, I can't remember if it's a bracelet or a necklace, but she buries some stuff that's, you know, that's very important to her. And it made me think about after someone experiences trauma, that objects that are tied to that trauma, that they'll bury literally and metaphorically. And then that she's confronted with this, um, this apparition. It's like her her dead body hurtling, hurtling through time in reverse to tell her, you know, you will die or you will be betrayed or um, people will let you down. Someone will hurt you with what we discover about, you know, her tryst with the, with the neighbor and his wife. I don't know the, maybe I'm just seeing everything through the me too times up filter. Now. I don't know. I felt like, I felt like there's a lot there about trauma, betrayal, 
Yeah. And, you know, the way that the the tape of the affair with the neighbors was presented and then like they were like, oh, we, we tried to find him, but like they moved. So, you know, we <laughs> find this guy uh, and his wife. It, it left you as the viewer uh, with a lot to f- try to figure out, like in terms of what was this situation and like because she was like 16, right? So but that's one of the things that I keep going. And that's one of the things I think this movie does so well is it like shines a dim light on a lot of tricky subjects where it's ambiguous. And, I, you know, I was thinking about this yesterday in my dear blind of like, she's a teenage girl. Is she 15 or is she 18? Is she 16? Because what, because each of those ages, it makes it a different story. And then I was like, oh, well, if she's under 18, it's a crime. And, blah. and then I was like, well, it's Australia. Maybe there's a different age of consent or law there or morality, um, because it seems like, you know, that the older neighbor and his wife sort of bring her into this threesome situation. It seems like, you know, like he's going to get a ticket for it or something, you know, that it's like a very minor offense. Yeah, um, every, no one really felt concerned. But then again, like when I was 16, I was dating, I think I was 15, dating like a 23 year old and no one was like, hey, don't. That's gross. Like, <laughs> And. And that's, that's, you know, don't want to go too far into this, but the, that's one of the things that I was thinking about is this, the entire movie is obsessed with Alice. Um, Alice's brother is obsessed with Alice. You know, Mm -hmm. the, um, the neighbor is obsessed with Alice. The boyfriend is obsessed. It seems everybody, every, the world spins on its axis around Alice, you know? So I'm trying to think about this young woman and uh, try to understand her life, have, have sympathy for her. Think about what type kind of person she is. When I was, Jesus Christ. When I was 16, I testified in a murder trial. When I was uh, 15 and 16, they were letting me take out like $30,000 worth of college loans. I was 15 when I left home. You know, I I was, I hitchhiked across the country when I was 17. I did all this shit, you know, and I think when I was like 17 or 18, I was dating a 24 year old stripper or something like that. So I did all this shit at that age that if I, you know, when I was 17, I was convinced that I was grown and that I knew everything mm-hmm. that and I was allowed to make a lot of adult decisions and some of those turned out badly, but also I was smart when I was a kid and like my nephew and my nieces, they're smart and I don't want to deny them agency or particularly with women, women are, you know, treated as children into their sixties. You know, I don't want to juvenilize her. Is that a word? I don't know. But also the, the relationship with the neighbor does seem terribly inappropriate even if it was something that she initiated, but also she's a young woman curious about sex. It's one of those things where it's like they shine enough of a light on a subject just to raise a thousand questions and mm-hmm. then the light to another subject. Yeah, absolutely. Because, I mean, you do raise a good point. At that age, people are exploring their sexuality. And you're absolutely right. Like when I was 16, you weren't going to tell me nothing, you know. Uh- yeah, <laughs> we, we knew everything then. <laughs> you know? Yeah. You know, I uh, I wasn't sure where to go from there because the tape itself, it seemed like everyone was laughing and, and the yeah. fact that she had the tape, I think, I don't know. Like, I feel like, uh, but maybe she stole it. I don't know. So many questions. You're absolutely right. Yeah. Like- <laughs> and, well, and, and that's the, the best thing and the most annoying thing about this movie is that it's open to every interpretation, right? The Maybe that was the one good night that they had where mm-hmm. it was. And then it yeah. became perfectly abusive. Maybe she was drugged for that. Maybe it was the whole thing was her idea. Maybe she was planning to, maybe, you know, she was, res- the reason she had the tape is she was going to blackmail him or, you know, or something like that. It does seem like all the men in this movie are up to no good. The, the, <laughs> I mean, one of the things we've seen, did you watch uh, Focus with uh, Willem Dafoe and no. Sam? It's a great movie about the guy from Hogan's Heroes. And he becomes a friend or he's befriended by this guy who's like a camera VCR salesman. And then they get into all this sort of like swinger lifestyle shit, sex addiction. And through it, you really see um, the camera, the tape recorder, the VCR as an implement of the male gaze and male control and also sort of um, a device that's a portal to hell. And the way that her brother, the way he's obsessed with his sister and with photography and video equipment that he's stitching his sister back in, it doesn't feel like a familial 
attraction that he has for her. It feels like a romantic attraction that he has for her. Yeah. I mean, that does make sense because I was kind of trying to like roll that out in my mind of like why her brother was doing this because it seemed like it just kind of absolutely tortures the mom. And and the brother has flat affect like the father where I was like, am I being uncharitable? Are they both just on the spectrum or is it just psychopath senior and junior? And then the, the fucking therapist, he's like trying to help the family to, to move on and neglects to mention the fact that he had seen Alice as a as a client before her death. Yeah, I thought that was so wild. If I was one of the parents, I would have been so pissed that you didn't tell me that from the very beginning. Uh, yeah, that was Ray, the psychic. and um, Psychic, yeah. Oh, yeah. I didn't trust him from the beginning. He just seemed... I love it, too. Like, everyone, when they first commented on Ray, they were like, yeah, Ray seems good. He doesn't seem spooky. Like, that was said twice. <laughs> I was like, I didn't know being spooky was a metric... Well, and I think he says, too, that his name actually isn't Ray. Mm-hmm. And uh, they do seed good um, good breadcrumbs. <laughs> you know, it's like if a guy assures you nine times, like, I'm a good guy. You can trust me. Like, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> it's like nothing gets the hackles up on the back of my neck faster than somebody being like, trust me, bro. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Actually, now that I think about anyone who's ever said, trust me, is someone you would never, ever trust. Like. If you trust someone, you don't have to say it. My my best-selling t-shirt to this day is still just a hyena that says, trust me, underneath it. <laughs> I was like buying drugs off some fucking drug dealer on the corner in Brooklyn. And he was like, oh, bro, this is good shit. You can trust me. And I turned to him and I was like, dude, your name is Boomer. <laughs> That's not your name. <laughs> I'm literally <laughs> buying drugs from you on the street corner in fucking Brooklyn. The last thing I'm going to do is trust you. You know, like I, I hope the shit is good. I'll be back if it is. But it's one of the, one of those th- a huge red flag. Mm-hmm. Um, that well, one one thing that I like about the character of Ray is that with that setup, he seems to be set up as a perpetrator or at least a bad guy, a bad actor. But like everyone else, he seems to be morally ambiguous, where he seems to genuinely care about about Alice, about helping her family, helping her mother move on. And then there's that like haunting, like missed connection at the end, which just just kills me every time. Yeah, that was brutal to watch. And then at the end, when you finally put it all together and you realize she's watching her family leave her as a ghost... I was curious what you thought, um, because there were there were so many instances where Alice said, I feel like death is coming for me uh, and it's inescapable. Like, what does that mean to you? What is is there any metaphor there that jumps out at you or what do you think Alice was experiencing? You know, I was thinking about a lot of the a lot of the shit that we watched in late 80s, early 90s of like Heathers and pump up the volume and um Movies like that, where you, if you go back and um, watch them again, like at the end of Heather's, it's like Columbine mm-hmm. and pump up the volume. I mean, it's these are all basically like school shooter movies. And Alice made me think of character Ginger from the movie Ginger Snaps. Mm. You know, there's the two sort of like lonely goth weirdo sisters. And at one point, you know, one sister turns to the other and she says, I don't want to die in this room with you. And Alice's obsession with her own death made me think of like all the goth girls I was friends with or had crushes on, you know, when I was in high school and how obsessed they were with their own mortality and how in the moment when I was 15, I thought they were serious. And then when I was 22, I thought they were full of shit. And then six years later when they OD'd, I was like, oh, Oh, all right. You you were onto something there. It it feels like Alice is haunting herself, mm-hmm. and it it feels like a Greek tragedy of just uh, the sort of prophecy that's then unavoidable. I don't know. What did you get out of her obsession with her own death? You know, uh, part of me was like, oh yeah, I was I was that teen. Uh, <laughs> then, uh, <laughs> but then there's also the idea of like. I looked at it through the lens of addiction and was like, oh, I mean, because that was kind of like my 
deciding factor to quit drinking was like, you're putting yourself in so many dumb situations that will ultimately lead to, I mean, like nothing good is going to come from it, you know? And I also think that that tendency to like isolate and just expect the worst and have catastrophic thought like that, you know, it just, it, it felt like that a lot to me. One of the the writing exercises that I have my students do is people are always terrible at talking about themselves, particularly memoir writers. And one of the things, so I would try and trick them or trap them into revealing things about themselves um, without doing it directly, because then they wouldn't put up obstacles. So I would have them tell me what shoes they were wearing. And there's no article of clothing that tells more about a person than your shoes. And then I would have them like describe what their their room looked like or their house looked like. And I was teaching a Zoom class and um, wrapped it up and was sort of feeling very pleased with myself and very smug about all the like revelations I had you know gotten these students to make about th themselves and their lives and their interior life. And then I looked at my room, my living room, which was like the, the, the like decoration motifs are just like guitars hanging on the walls and in every corner, uh, skulls and skeletons everywhere. And then like cartoon boobs, like naked ladies in velvet <laughs> and shit like that. And I was like, oh my God, you're such a fucking death obsessed caveman. <laughs> a dash of horny. That's, you know. Yes. <laughs> A little, little spice. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, it's the, so funny you mentioned that though. I always look at people's shoes when I first meet them. I, I think you're a hundred percent correct. You can tell a lot about someone by the shoes they wear. Yeah. Yeah. And when I was little, my grandpa always said, don't ever wear shoes. You can't run from the cops in. <laughs> I, I learned that about Halloween costumes too. <laughs> <laughs> don't wear anything. You don't want to get into a fight while you're wearing it. <laughs> The uh, this movie also gives me an opportunity to to get like literary nerd on it, which I really appreciate because I think horror is an amazing genre, and I think unfortunately they're it just they go for dumb a lot of times when you know they're like, ooh, we'll go with a chainsaw or a laser beam, or something. it's like no, just the it, like it's more fucked up if it's a hammer, you know. But this made me think of a story by Stephen Milhauser called The Disappearance of Elaine Coleman by Stephen Milhauser. And it's a story about sort of an average woman working in HR or something like that in an office job. And then suddenly one somebody notices that she's not there. She's she's gone. And that's not the first day that she's been gone, that she's been gone for a while. And then at the end of the story, he sort of comes to this conclusion that she'd been fading for a while in plain view of everyone, that she'd just gotten uh, quieter and smaller and transparent and then sometimes not there at all and then a flicker and then a shadow and then she was gone completely and they, and nobody ever nobody ever knew or ever noticed you know that she she seemed to have been a woman just erased from the record by the noise around her so that's kind of a fucked up haunting story of a woman just becoming a ghost in plain view and then um something about this made me think of that old uh women's lit 101 clunker the yellow wallpaper by uh charlotte perkins gilman you know of uh a woman slowly driven insane i don't know th this movie you know obviously it plays into the immediate film noir horror trope of a, a dead woman a, a young dead woman a beautiful young dead woman right Th that seems to be something that horror fans and true crime fans that's their bread and butter right the mm -hmm. mutilated bodies of uh attractive young women and i don't know i haven't been able to like string it all together but there's like something there there's you know um they walk it's like they walk right into that trope and then they're trying to um, explode it or expose it, you know, by showing how all the different men in the movie are obsessed with uh, with Alice Palmer. There's no happy ending in this movie. Mm -mm. You don't necessarily want her mother and her brother to be released from their obsession or their grief because you don't really see grief with them, but you want her mother to be released from it. It made me think of, you know, period the periods in my life where my sisters would like fight tooth and nail with my mom. And then, you know, the girls I knew who went through like a certain age range from 
13 to 15 or 15 to 17 or something like that, where they were like, fuck you, bitch, you're ruining my life. Just hated their moms. And they were so mm-hmm. cool. And it seems like, it seems like Alice Palmer and her mother are in that period when Alice dies. So I feel for her mother and I want her mother to get some relief or some release. But when, when they leave the house and Alice is left trapped inside, it's like they got their release they can leave the haunted house and she can't mm-hmm. yeah i couldn't imagine i'm gonna stay there forever <laughs> one thing i was thinking about uh, and i've been thinking about this a lot uh trying to write a bit about it but it's just not coming out funny uh is the <laughs> idea of like i'm born of the first generation of women who could have their own credit card own bank accounts own um you know financial autonomy really and i can't help but wonder like with June, um, Alice's mom, like, I don't know, I can't help but feel like there might be some intergenerational tension there about like, Alice had so much before her so much opportunity. And June just sees that as wasted. And is, you know, I, I think she's angry about that as well. We see her and her brother sort of like horsing around on camera and she's, she's popular. She has friends. She has a boyfriend. She has, you know, the, the sort of tryst on the side. And yeah, I mean, it definitely feels like her mother has feels envy for her. What, here's another weird thing in this movie. What did you get out of the, the transmission on the car failing so that they have to drive back from the lake in reverse? Yeah, that just seemed so, well, I mean, I feel like there were so many things that they said in this movie that were absolutely wild. And the way they said it was just like, yeah, that's just what we did. <laughs> like, that was one of them. Like, what? You're, you're just going to drive an hour in reverse? Like, how is that possibly normal? What, one of the things I always hector my writing students about is that when you have a moment of great drama, there's no need to punch it up with fancy language or stall it out or whatever just if you just say the thing plainly and trust the the strength of the narrative to carry the point it's it's that much more effective and i think that's one of the things that they do in this story is that you know they they just say you know well well she died you know or mm-hmm. well she, and and you're like oh my god that you just say, say that for me you know there have been times in my life when horrible shit has happened or i've lost somebody and the and actually also when when I first came across this movie, I, w- I was sort of dealing with something horrible and I'd become obsessed with the idea of like time machines and alternate reality and like linear time as a Mobius strip and something. And the, you know, when you lose someone, it's like death is a, a huge door closing and then an infinite number of smaller doors that close and close and close over the the first day the first week the first month the first year you're like oh the well he's been gone for five years now he's been gone for 10 years now this would this would have been his 31st birthday you know the these individual rubicons that we with which we mark grief and with each one of those it's like we we chip away at someone's personhood and flatten them out into them becoming a memory of someone that we've lost or, you know, in this instance, a ghost. And there have been times where, God, I was reading this article about um, one of the, one of the ravers in Israel, um, you know, who had lost three friends or something. And he said, I become obsessed with a time machine in my head of just being able to rewind back to that day and just leaving an hour early or leaving two hours early. And I think in the immediate aftermath of a tragedy, we do become narrowly obsessed with uh, it, it was just an hour ago. It was just a day ago. It's still, it's still retrievable. We can just take 10 steps back and the, and, and we'll, we'll get, we'll get a do over. We'll get another opportunity to do it. And with them driving back and back in reverse, I was like, Oh God, this shows the frailty of humanity that whether they know it or that or not they're trying to rewind time by driving in reverse and man it doesn't fucking work that way no and that that's such a beautiful metaphor too i think because it's like they are technically moving forward but they're always looking back in that car ride so i think yeah. it represents you know like you said the market made on that family yeah and and the nature of grief too is that the closure is a white myth it never happens the you know the the pain that you have or the grief you have or the trauma or whatever you carry it until you die you know the it just 
the volume gets turned down or, or it's like a hat, you know, that you're like, Oh shit, I haven't seen it in three weeks. I guess I left it at the bus stop. And then you're like, well, it's gone. And then, Oh, it was in your bag the whole time, you know? So it's mm-hmm. like, uh, you, you can do all these rituals and therapy and stuff like that. And, and never be, you're never able to like seal the box or close the crypt or, you know, uh, lose the hat, mix the metaphor. You're never able to, to get that freedom that you want. And then when it does happen, it's just sort of like a forgetfulness or something. I think people, yeah, it does. And I think people beat themselves up for actually feeling like they could be over something too. So I think it goes both ways. Like there's this quest to like get over it, but then you feel bad about that too. At the end of the movie, when they're driving away, I don't feel like good for them or happy for them. I've, cause I'm like, man, I'm not over it. How can you be over this? Like mm-hmm. the, then for Alice to reappear, they keep doing this thing in the movie of showing us something, presenting it as true, and then going back and rewriting it and rewriting it and rewriting it. And it's like the film is gaslighting us. Yes. Um, and it shows <laughs> that the, the subjectivity of, of memory versus reality, uh, perception versus reality. And then to go back and see those images, you know, the images from the movie is, you know, where her brother had stitched her in and we see where he's like sort of clumsily stitched her in. Then she is, she is actually there off in the background, but it's a fake documentary, but it feels real. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that, that feathering together of reality and unreality. It's uh, yeah. It's so eerie. Yeah, I did think it was really well done. Like, uh, honestly, when I first started watching it, I was like, is this a documentary? And I had to like, look at the little review again and be like, oh, no, no, it's a fake out. Yeah. But yeah, when they were leaving, it did feel like kind of felt like uh, we as a family have made a commitment to suppress this a little bit. You know, (laughs) didn't it didn't feel like closure felt bad. Yeah, yeah. It feels like when you have a friend die and then like three days later, they box up all the person's stuff and like donate it to charity or something. And you're like, well, I don't want you to keep the room as a museum, but like, fuck, that was quick, man. Mm-hmm. Um, I, th- I feel like there's a, I think it's a Shakespearean quote where it says um, there, there's nothing, there's nothing more corrupt or more alien in this world than a, a parent having to bury a child. And oh, yeah. we watch parents bury a child and then dig her up. Oof, yeah. And then bury her again. <laughs> and it's just, I, I mean, the word that I keep coming back to with this movie is it's horror. It's horrific. You know, I mean, the, but it's not like, you know, the wolf man with the big fake claws, you know, growling outside your door kind of horror. It's a, it's a very, it's a, such a mind fuck of horror. Uh, yeah. And I think, you know, it, speaks to being more horrifying because it is so commonplace like this could happen anywhere it's yeah and and i think that is why we keep sort of going have to going back to like having having to check the ingredients on it to, to this is made up right because this could be any one of a number of deaths that you or i or a bunch of our friends at altercation have experienced you know the i remember i was on the road and this there was this super fan i think his name was bj lived in michigan and he was like i'm your number one fan you got to come play here i'm your number one fan you got to come play here and then like two days later it was like this is bj's mom services will be held oh oh fuck and then like two weeks later it was like whoever stole the flat screen tv from the services at um you know for bj that we're gonna find you and and it was just this and i i never met this kid the you know i knew that he was a a super fan and definitely felt sadness when he passed but that but to to just see the little glimpses of his life from the drunken messages that he would send me and then his mom's that like plaintive horrific facebook post that we know from like encountering loss on facebook the the mom posting it and then they stole the fucking tv from the memorial Jesus. Yeah, just horrifying. Oh, you know, I did have one more question for you. The mom, June, who she started uh, yeah. walking into other people's houses. There of the two of us just spiraling, just spiraling in horror, thinking about what a fucking bummer this movie is. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. 
Yeah. No, I was curious what you thought June, what was going through June's mind, the mom, when she was like going into other people's homes and just hanging out. So that happens a lot in this movie, right? Because then they catch the neighbor creeping into their house as well. I've been watching, I've been watching all the house reruns and the, you know, the thing that runs through that TV series is everyone lies. And in this movie, I think it's, everyone's a creep or everyone has secrets, you know, that, um, you know, were presented initially with this sort of very banal, you know, suburban Aussie family. And then every single one of them turns out to be a creep and a weirdo in some way. Um, and each one of them, you know, it's sort of just like click to expand and then they have some bizarre secret that they, they've been concealing. Her bringing into other people's houses, it made me, that made me see June Palmer as the girl that, who she once was. Because that struck me as maybe that was the kind of sort of thrill-seeking behavior that um, that Alice would have done. I remember when I was a kid, I never did this, but I had friends who would break into people's houses while they were there and then go and like take a drink of the milk and then put the milk on the counter and then leave. What? <laughs> and you know, just just like creepy shit like that. <clears throat> what did you make out of it? I mean, the I I grief is bizarre and it manifests in so many weird ways and I just thought that was another bizarre manifestation of June's grief for her daughter. Yeah, you, I agree. I think she said she just wanted to be inside someone else's life for a while. So I think it was just the grief drove her to maybe she was even like disassociating and just being like, I'm in this family now, you know, <laughs> but I think I think a lot of the family felt guilt for not intervening um, because Alice was probably showing some signs of like not doing mentally well. So I don't know. Part of me wonders if like the ghost story is, um, you know, kind of a concoction that they've made to help themselves deal with that grief as well. Yeah, I tried to write down this quote, and I was just looking for it now. Um, I thought it, I wrote it down in my notes. But at one point, June says, death is this big, dumb machine that just no matter what you do, it just keeps coming and coming and coming and coming. And the and that made me think that I've been overthinking Alice's death this entire time, and that her go ghost sort of hurtling back through the past, it's it's just memento mori. It's just remember that you must die. It's each of us as human beings having to confront our own mortality. And, you know, and I think the most common last words are, oh God, I'm dying because it takes each of us by surprise. Like, it's like I watched it happen to all these other people, but for some reason, you know, there are sort of our human programming the same way that women are programmed to like forget childbirth, the pain of childbirth. So they're able to have more children that as human beings, we're unable to accept the fact that one day we will die and we will become nothing um, because to carry that thought around with you, it, it'll derail your day, man. You know? Oh, yeah. I remember I was like in my early 20s, I worked at a hair salon and this older woman, she's, she's probably in her 50s. You know, she was talking about how she hated now her hair grew in white and wiry. And I remember so vividly just thinking like, oh, that sucks. Too bad. It'll never happen to me. You know, like, like you just have this like, yeah. you know, you know, logically, realistically, rationally, you're going to die. But, you know, it's uh, it's not something we embrace or really, really uh, comprehend, I think. I, I remember being I was still in Canada, so I was probably in like first or second grade. One of my classmates, this girl, Christy, just crying uncontrollably one day. And I was asked somebody, you know, what's wrong with her? And, and they said, oh, you know, she she just figured out that we're all going to die or that she's going to die, you know. And the and on the one hand, I was like, ha, you fucking dummy. Like, how did you not know that? And also, wait, all of us are going to die like, but not me. Like, you know. yeah, that my mom and my dad, me. That no, like, are, no, maybe you guys. You know, <laughs> we do have like such resistance to, you know, to the concept that like our days are numbered here. You know, I mean, I still that when I walk, I turned on the Zoom and I was like, oh my god, I'm not, it's not even like my dad in the thing. It's like 
the grandfather that I never knew. I mean, like full, <laughs> disgusting, like winter pelt, like uh, outdoor hobo. And th- I mean, when, w- looking in a mirror now, I'm like, fucking hell, what happened to you? You know, it, <laughs> we, we forget that we are, you know, creeping towards our own deaths. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> what a fun time we're having. <laughs> I've been looking forward to this podcast for such a long time. I was so glad <laughs> <laughs> anybody who i've described this movie to they're like yeah fuck no i'm not gonna fucking watch that are you kidding that why are you so into that what's wrong with you and it's it is a fascinating movie and it, it it's just it's raised a lot of questions that i haven't been able to answer yeah it definitely captivates and then like just makes you go like what what was that about what are you doing what yeah um but you know i could imagine like if my teenage kid died i'd I'd be weird. I'd be going through people's houses too. Why not? Um, you know, I don't want to, I normally ask, you know, what's your favorite part, but like, what do you think is the most moving part of this movie or what, what got you the most? Oh God. The scene with Alice and her mother, one side of it is narrated with Alice and Ray, the psychic first, and then it's narrated with Ray and June, her mother. And but you don't realize until the second scene that that's happening at the same time. And that when, when June senses a presence, Alice is there and she's, she's looking for her mother to acknowledge her to, you know, and a door opens in that scene and we're waiting for Alice to walk through or her mother to walk through for them to embrace for, for, the evil thing to be undone. And, you know, this whole horrifying nightmare that we've sat through for an hour and a half up to this point for, for, for them to, for there to be some healing or some communion or some connection, something. And then the door closes and you feel all the grief that you've sort of been saving up to this point again, new freshly that for a moment there, it's like they had a chance for, something i don't know redemption or connection or for for alice's mother to save her or yeah it's it's a profoundly affecting movie you know mm-hmm. i when i was this is dark but it's a horror podcast uh, oh, yeah. when, I was 15, Let's go. when i was 15 a kid at my school got an assault rifle and shot up our school and uh murdered a friend of ours and a teacher and we all went crazy in our own ways after that and i had to testify in his murder trial and that was bizarre but our our friend's father uh went completely insane to the point that he went to to try to understand it somehow he went out and bought the same model of the assault rifle that the murderer had bought and was in the back, you know, in his shed behind his house. And he was making the same modification to, that his son's murderer had made in an attempt to try to figure it out. And that's always for me the sort of like prima you know, fascia example of the ways in which grief makes us all insane. You know, the Galen's dad came back from that. It's, you know, he, it's like he went that line about, uh, went all the way to Bedlam and came all the way back. I don't think this movie comes all the way back. <laughs> you know, I think that it it very much leaves us still in trouble with Alice still lost. And, and then her family, they leave, but I don't have any sense that they're going to a new happy life. Mm-mm. The My question for you about this movie, because I feel like you dig this movie as much as I do. Um, there are so many horror movies that we have known and loved that have then spawned truly devastating sequels where you're just like, what the fuck? What, what's wrong with you guys? That, how is, you know, how is this so horrible? What is the worst Lake Mungo 2 sequel that you can think of? Okay. So the sequel would be that the brother continues with the videotapes. Cause I don't know if you watched it till the end, but after the credits, there's a, a scene with Alice too, where you just see her. Oh God, I got to go back and watch it again. Yeah, Watch that movie like two or three times. And then when we rescheduled the podcast, I was like, I should go and watch it again. And I was like, I don't know that I have the internal strength to watch it again. Mm-hmm. Okay. So um, maybe this wouldn't even be bad. I might watch this, but the brother gets fixated on continuing making these videos and photos with Alice in them. 
And then the mom is like, I'm going to confront this. I'm going to kill the ghost. But it's actually the brother dressed as Alice making the video. So she kills her son. I love it. There's got to be a Ouija board in there somewhere. There's oh, yeah, that- yeah, yeah. And then the dad is just like, mm-hmm. uh, the whole movie. <laughs> well, yeah, that is uh, truly Truly. Wow. You had that one stored up and ready to go, didn't you? I didn't even know. Yeah. Apparently Actually, it lives in me. Haven't been preparing for your taping. You were just writing Lake mungo <laughs> Lake mungo a go More mungo than ever. It was funny, though, how they kept saying, like, this is a very popular vacation spot. And it just looks so shitty. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's, it's so busted. Yeah. It's really like, yeah, you really brought your daughter here to drown, didn't you? <laughs> I know. I was like, no one goes there for fun. What is this? We've been drowning our children here for generations. <laughs> <laughs> uh, any final thoughts on Lake Mungo? Despite everything that you and I have said thus far, I absolutely recommend this movie. I, I, I really think, I can't think of any other horror movies like it. And it's... um. It, it's a unique sensation watching this movie. It, it's really, it's not like anything else. But yeah, thank you so much for giving me an outlet um, to talk about this with somebody other than my therapist. Oh, absolutely. Because- yeah. <laughs> if you ever want to chat about thinly veiled metaphors for death, I'm your lady. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think it's a fascinating movie and I, I think it's really dense. Yeah. And it is really helpful to have somebody to like parse a movie like this with you. Right. I know. Like when I finished watching it, I was with a bunch of friends and I kept wanting to talk about it. And they were like, "Mm, no. Mm." (laughs) I think the overall consensus was just I feel bad. Yeah. Yeah. It is. It is a haunting movie. It is absolutely a haunting movie. Yeah. So this will probably come out next week. Uh, Is there anything you would like people to know about or where can people find more about you? Uh, I mean, obviously, everybody should go to. altercation comedy festival in uh at kickbutt coffee in austin texas on november 1st through 4th are those yeah. the dates? they are the dates you're good at that yeah that's the only thing i have coming up the i'll be back in phoenix this winter i do house shows there if you're in the neighborhood you should totally come through i'd love to host you on my coffee table i mean stage uh that we put in <laughs> I would love to come to Arizona when it's cold in Wisconsin. And I'm uh, I'm Mishka Shabali on everything on Facebook. I'm at Mishka Shabali on Instagram. Not really on Twitter anymore because fuck all that noise. Oh, but, yeah. Um, what a nightmare. Yeah. Cool. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Yeah. That's been Mishka. I've been Kristen. And this has been Bloody Mary. Have a good night. Why are you creeping up behind me? Get those claws!